This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here to talk about Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, track by track. Jason, what are we going to do for the intro to this episode? I was thinking that we should work on our falsettos. Okay, no, no I, 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 I think you're... Chop talking! <laughs> All right, now we will not be doing that for the remainder of the episode. Okay, before we get going, I have to celebrate the fact that we have an anniversary. It was three years ago that we first sat down on your porch and said, what are we going to do for this podcast? Yeah, that's right. It was an amazing moment. We sat down, we explored movies, we explored comparisons. We came up with our first season and about a million ideas for the seasons to come. And I want to give some credit to some guys who are inspirational 30-something movie podcast. We had been listening to them. We had taken some cues from stuff that they were doing. And so I got to say, guys, if you are not listening to the 30-something movie podcast, you need to be Shirley fans. Go look up the 30-something movie podcast. What they do is they go and they look at movies that are 30 years old this year. So right now they're covering 1992 movies. They've been doing it for what, like six years now? I think they started in 85, seven years now. Yeah. But I mean, gosh, they just covered Patriot Games, they covered The Bodyguard, they covered The Last of the Mohicans, they covered Scent of a Woman. Hooah! Hooah! Man, these guys are awesome. It's John and Pat and Jeff and Dennis and Bo, and it's like hanging out with your best friends for an hour and a half. It's fantastic. Yeah, we love these guys. These guys have actually become our friends. It's really cool. It really is. You know, we, we really need to go up to Chicago and see these guys, but... Yeah. They're great guys. Their, their podcasts are fun and entertaining and definitely recommend them. You guys need to go subscribe right now. Okay, so did you listen to the, the, the most recent one, A Few Good Men? Yeah, I did. Pat's not a fan of the uh, of the movie. I was floored by that, right? <laughs> he tells you the truth. He does. You want the truth? <laughs> you can't handle the truth. <laughs> Pat was a little bit upset. I think that the Tom Cruise character was not uh, stepping in line with the chain of command. <laughs> And that, uh, you know, he was had that little maverick arrogance there. But uh, yeah. it's very interesting stuff. Those guys are great. Friends of ours, go check them Especially out. Especially Jeff. Jeff is the best one. <laughs> <laughs> He's the greatest guy of them all. We are just ripping Jeff a little bit. We love you, man. We love you guys. We love Jeff. We love Pat. We love Bo. We love Dennis. And we love our good friend, John Reed, who... If you haven't checked out that podcast as well, be sure and check out Podcast Full of Kryptonite, where we go and we talk about all wonderful things that are Superman. And Jeff, I swear that text was for you, (laughs) not Pat. Although I texted Pat, it's just a copy and paste error. I'm sorry. Be sure and go check them out. 30-something movie podcast. This is one of the best soundtracks of the 70s. It's the second biggest selling soundtrack of all time behind Whitney Houston's The Bodyguard soundtrack. Wow. Yeah. That's 40 million copies. I mean, like Titanic didn't beat this one? No. Man. No. That's incredible. It was the largest selling album of all time until Thriller came around. Oh my God. This is the Thriller of the 70s. Oh my word. That's crazy. 17 tracks on this one. 
17 tracks. We're going to have to move fast. Okay. Ready to jump into the history now? Let's go! Okay. So I thought we weren't doing the false oh, setup. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to start in the Isle of Man in 1946, where a young English boy named Barry Gibb is born. Okay. Three years later, he has little fraternal twin brothers named Robin and Maurice, and then they move to Australia. Now, interesting. Good night, mate. Let's throw another shrimp on the barbie. Oh, thank you so much for doing that. Oh, my gosh. So, interestingly, at the same time that they're moving to Australia, there's a guy who grew up in Australia, born in 1934. In 1955, he moves from Australia to the United Kingdom. So, okay. they basically kind of switch sides of the, the ocean, if you will. Okay. Now, what's really interesting is that in the articles that I read, it says that this guy, Robert Stigwood, after he was done with college, 1955, he hitchhiked to England. I don't know how you do that. Like, I mean, this isn't just... From the, Australia? Yes. This isn't just the Wikipedia page. Like, there's a legitimate article out there that's like, he hitched... I don't know. I don't... You know, did he thumb a ride on a barge? Of, I, I don't even... It's a weird one. Well done to him. Yes. Good job. So, in 55, the Gibb brothers, they start a little rock and roll slash skiffle band. Have you heard of the term skiffle before? No. I don't think so. Okay. So, it's this music that was kind of the precursor to what a lot of rock and roll guys did, which is a combination of American folk, jazz, and blues. So they're starting off in the same way that the Beatles are starting off a bunch of other big bands from the UK. But they're down in Australia, and they're they're young men. 55, the oldest one, Barry, would have been 11, and the other two would have just been 8. But they're getting some TV appearances. They're starting to make some singles that they're releasing, but nothing exciting is happening yet. So since they're not doing anything exciting in Australia, let's see what's happening with Mr. Robert Stigwood up in the UK. Okay. He goes up there and he does a few odd jobs, ultimately ends up working with a theatrical agency, convinces a businessman, hey, will you finance my theatrical agency? I'm going to get some of these theater actors and have them be in TV commercials in the UK. Okay. So it's doing okay. And he's got this client named John Layton. Now, John is in this like OXO family commercial and doing these little bit parts. But he goes to Stigwood and he says, hey, you know, I really wanted to be a pop star. I, I mean, I like acting, but I'm really a singer. And Robert Stigwood says, well, like, well, let's just go take you to the record company. He's like, well, I've already been, you know, and they all turned me down. So Robert Stigwood's like, okay, I'm going to take you over to the recording studio. We're going to have a professional engineer do one of your songs, okay? And so they go over there and they record this song called Johnny Remember Me. Okay. Then, Robert Stigwood goes to the director of this TV series that his client is acting in, and he says, hey, you know, this guy's playing a singer in the show. Why don't you have him actually sing this song? And the director's like, great. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Well, the song becomes a hit from the TV show, and now the record companies that had rejected him are now beating a path to his door so that they can sign him. Well, of course, Robert Stigwood is managing him, and Robert Stigwood's rock and roll career begins. Fantastic. This song not only goes to number one, I hadn't heard of it, so I checked it on YouTube. YouTube, 3.2 million downloads of this song. We'll play it for you here. Yes, I'll always Yeah, I hadn't heard it either, but it made Robert Stigwood a name. Okay. 
So fast forward to 1966, a couple of other bands that he's managing aren't really feeling like they're vibing too well anymore. The guitarist from one of the bands is like, hey, I saw these other guys that were in a trio. I kind of would like to do something like that. And Stig was like, hey, I know a couple of other guys from one of my other bands. You guys can all work together. And so the guitarist was Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton. The two other guys were Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. Whoa. And they went on to form the band Cream. Holy smokes. Right. Robert so, Stigwood is off to a fantastic start. Exactly. So this is this is 66. He says, hey, you know, I'm the booking agent for The Who. They need an opening band. Cream becomes the opening band for The Who. By the time they get done with their tour, they're world famous. Wow. Hey, you mentioned that that song went to number one. Yeah. Let me just <clears throat> prepare myself for this episode, okay? Okay. That song hit number one. <laughs> <clears throat> That's another hit that hit number one. And that's another song that hit number one. Okay, I think I'm ready to go now. <laughs> We're going to talk about eight, ten number one hits. It's absurd the amount of number one hits. Now, to jump back, if you will, to our Bee Gees friends. Yeah. 1966, they record the first song that becomes a chart topper for them. And it's a song called Spicks and Specks. Where is the sun that shone on my head? Hits number four. Okay. On the top 40 okay. in, in, in Australia. I got a question for you. Can you tell me what the songs Physical by Olivia Newton-John, Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera, okay. and Hard Habit to Break by Chicago Whoa. all have in common? No, I can't. They were all written by a guy named Steve Kipner, who, in his very first gig, was singing backup vocals on Spicks and Specks by the Bee Gees. That is a fantastic <laughs> nugget right there. Rabbit hole that I go down, right? Hey, by the way. Yes. You know who's playing guitar on Olivia Newton-John's physical, right? Steve Lukather. Oh, yeah. It all ties together. <laughs> it all ties together. And Olivia Newton-John, of course, comes up a little bit later on with Robert Stigwood's productions. We'll get to that in a little bit. So by this time, obviously, the Beatles have become huge, right? right? And the Bee Gees think, hey, we want to go be a part of this British invasion that's happening. So in January of 67, they go back to the UK and they start pumping themselves. The dad is their manager, and he's really trying to get them out there. So one of the guys that they end up talking to is the manager for the Beatles, Brian Epstein. Okay. I mean, he's the guy who made the Beatles famous. Incredible name. Yep. And he says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a little busy. I don't think that you're probably right for me. But I just merged my company with this guy named Robert Stigwood, and he's from Australia. You guys should talk to him. Wow. Do you see how the stars are wow. aligning? Okay, so Stigwood says, I love these guys. They sound just like the Beatles. And if you listen to their 60s recordings, they have a very Beatles style to their music. And so they decide, hey, we're going to go check out some musical venues. They go over to New York City. They happen to catch Otis Redding playing at the Apollo Theater. Now, I watched the documentary that's out right now on the Bee Gees. And here's the way this story goes in the documentary. Robert Stigwood takes them to New York. They see Otis Redding. They love Otis Redding. They decide to write a song for Otis Redding. And unfortunately, Otis Redding dies that same year. Oh. And so they end up recording the song themselves. And the song is To Love Somebody. Hey, 
Yeah. So I'm like, wow, that is a fantastic nugget. I got to talk about that on the show. The only problem is when I started looking at it, they recorded the song in April of 67. Otis Redding didn't die until December of 67. So I'm not sure if the memories are off or <laughs> or the release dates are off on the internet, swebs, but it's a good story. So let's just go with To Love Somebody was supposed to be an Otis Redding song that became a PG song. Okay, I can go with that. <laughs> So also in 67, they record a song called The New York Mining Disaster of 1941. This happens when they first go to the recording studio. They get there and suddenly the power goes out in the building. They're all sitting around waiting for the power to come back on. They're in pitch black. They're playing a guitar and it's got this kind of weird echoey effect in the place. And suddenly they're kind of taken to this idea of being trapped in a mine. And so they just got this kind of idea in their head of what it would be like to be stuck inside this dark mining shaft. What they ended up with was a song that they named New York Mining Disaster of 1941. There was no disaster in 1941 in New York. There was in Pennsylvania, but I don't think that they really, that was a part of it. It was just, hey, this, you know, paints the picture. That song becomes a top 20 hit for them. Shortly thereafter, August of 67, they record Massachusetts, which goes on to be a huge success. And then later that month, Brian Epstein drops dead. Gosh. 67 is a pretty impactful year for these guys. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so suddenly the manager of the Beatles dies. And so the question is, hey, is Bob Stigwood going to become the new manager for the Beatles? And it looked like he was the guy who would be the heir apparent, that right? makes sense to me, yeah. The only problem is the Beatles said, F you, no way, not going to happen. Huh. And so since they've got this company together and the Beatles are refusing to have him as a manager, he is asked to leave the company. But it's not a bad deal for him. He goes out with what they call a golden handshake. You've heard about the golden parachute for executives, you know, sure. or this big severance package. Well, the golden handshake's like a step above that. Like he gets all the money, all the retirement, everything all at once. And he goes on to form his own RSO records, which now has cream and the Bee Gees. RSO. I remember RSO records when I was a kid. I just remember the little bull on the on the record label. Nice. Good throwback. Okay. All right. Unfortunately, in 1968, Cream disbands. Mm-hmm. They're done. Right. Eric Clapton goes on to form Blind Faith in 68. They had some great stuff, but it just wasn't popular at the time. Okay. Next thing that he puts together is Derek and the Dominoes. Right. Huge album, right? Huge. Uh-huh. Layla and other love songs. Flashback to our Goodfellas episode. Thank you. I was waiting for that. Okay. The only problem is it also doesn't do very well when it first is released. And so wow. Eric Clapton has now gone through three bands, has had not the huge success that he thought he would have, and his best buddies, Jimi Hendrix and Dwayne Allman, both die. So he spirals in depression. At the same time, the Bee Gees are breaking up. Robin is tired of Barry. Barry's tired of Robin. Robin's like, you know what? I'm done. And he leaves. So Cream's falling apart. Bee Gees are falling apart. Robert Stigwood is in a predicament, it seems. And Eric Clapton has gone into this huge depression from the loss of his friends, the bad album reviews, and his unrequited love by Patty Boyd. You know who Patty Boyd is, right? Patty is George Harrison's wife. Correct. Yes! You nailed it. Wow! So, at first, obviously, she's married to George Harrison. She is not going to return his love, and so he's depressed. Now, ultimately, she ends up divorcing Harrison and marrying Clapton, but that's a story for another day. But the song Layla is about her and the fact that she is not returning his love. She's got him on his knees. Yeah. Beg him, please. (laughs) 
Hey, Eric Clapton was supposed to join the Beatles at some point in this whole thing, right? Yeah, I mean, they... Is this the Eric Clapton podcast? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's where it... But it all comes back? I'm, oh. I'm, I'm bringing it full okay, circle. Okay. Just wait, just right. wait, right? Okay. And so the, the Bee Gees put some albums out that are just Barry and Maurice in there. None of them very good. So even though all of Robert Stigwood's world is falling apart right now, he is having some success stories outside of rock music with a production of a few Broadway hits, one of which is Jesus Christ Superstar, 1973. Young man comes in to audition for him. You brought this up on our last podcast can you tell me who that young man was that young man's name was john travolta and he didn't get the part he did not but robert stigwood remembered him Uh uh-huh so robert stigwood is thinking okay what you need eric clapton is a change of scene so in 1974 he's like i'm gonna take you away from the bad influences that you have get you in a nice sunny place so you can't be sad we're gonna go to miami florida and you're gonna record an album he records an album and titles at the place where he stayed 461 ocean boulevard which has a little song you might have heard of on there called i shot the sheriff (laughs) and at this point he sees the success that he's been missing his whole life and he says you know what robert maybe the bgs need a change of scenery too and so robert says yeah let me see if i can get them over to miami they bring back robin robin's with them maurice is with them barry's with them all together we're going to record this album in miami called main course which has another song you might have heard of called jive talking (laughs) the falsetto's back yeah so what? That is how Eric Clapton resurrected the Bee Gees' career. Thank you, Eric Clapton, for saving the Bee Gees and giving us <laughs> this fantastic album we're going to talk about today. So I want to talk about a couple of things with Main Course, okay? First, it has it's the first appearance of the logo that is totally recognizable as the Bee Gees logo now. Okay. You know talk about yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. So do you know who the album, the artist was for that album? No. A young guy who had been doing some other albums but hadn't really hit his major success yet named Drew Struzan. Get the heck <laughs> out of here. That was the one that blew my mind just a second ago. I was like, oh, that's a great nugget. I am Drew Struzan's biggest freaking fan. <laughs> my son did a report on Drew Struzan in, in school. Oh, that's fantastic. Every movie poster you've ever seen from the 80s yeah. was done by Drew Struzan. Indiana Jones, Shawshank Redemption, you name it, and it's got an amazing poster. He's the guy that was the artist. Wow. So, main course, another big important thing that happened was Robert Stigwood said, hey guys, I don't think that you should keep doing these ballads that you've been doing for the last four years and failing at. How about we try some disco? Thank you, Robert Stigwood. Let's try disco. So that was 75. Also in 1975, a TV series comes out, has that young actor that we mentioned before, a TV series named Welcome Back, Cotter. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Stars are aligning right here. I can see it happening. Got there. <laughs> also, in 1976, the next year, Robert Stigwood buys the rights to an article called The Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. He also, in 1976, signs that young man who had auditioned for him in Jesus Christ Superstar to a $1 million three-picture deal, starting with Saturday Night Fever.
That's fantastic. Thanks. Now I think we can jump into the album track by track. Oh my gosh. I mean, to get us to this point, you've already blown my mind five times. Yeah. So let's talk about the album really quick, okay? okay. Yeah. So Saturday Night Fever, the album, was released in November of 1977. Like we said, this is the second biggest selling soundtrack of all time behind The Bodyguard by Whitney Houston. This album stayed on the charts from November of 1977 until March of 1980. Holy cow. Three years on the charts? Can I tell you something that happened in 1980 also? Sure. In 1980, the Bee Gees realized that Robert Stigwood had very slyly and carefully taken over the rights to all of their copyrights. They no longer had rights in any of their songs. So they had to say goodbye, Mr. Stigwood, and sue RSO to get the rights to their songs back, which they won. Wow. Probably soured the relationship just as much. I would say so, yes. Yeah. This album was number one for 24 straight weeks. To say this is the thriller of the 70s is not hyperbole. Yeah. This was a humongous pop culture nuclear bomb <laughs> of the 70s. The only people to outsell the Bee Gees? Listen to this list. Okay. okay. This yeah. is all time. Yeah. Okay. Elvis. Okay. The Beatles. Yeah. Michael Jackson. Yeah. Garth Brooks. Uh-huh. And Paul McCartney. Wow. That's the list. Wow. That's the list of people who have outsold the Bee Gees. They were a wrecking ball. They were amazing and so well regarded because of their association with disco and probably their teeth a little bit. They <laughs> they were a punching bag for a whole lot of folks. I told you, once 1980 came around, they stopped doing so much of their own songs and did more writing for other folks, including Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, Islands in the Stream. That's fantastic. You sent me a Celine Dion song. That oh, they yeah. Did. They're the ones who wrote Immortality, which you will know from the Celine Dion version that came out in 1998. I mean, they're all over the place. Their catalog is huge, just as songwriters. So listen to this. The Bee Gees did not even get involved in Saturday Night Fever until the movie was in post-production. Wow. They were working on their next album. They were in France. And Melissa Mingle tried to help me with my friend's pronunciation <laughs> of this, okay? Yes. Thank you, Melissa. I'm still going to stink. But here, here we go, okay? They were at the Chateau de Herville. Elton John called this the Funky Chateau. Okay. It's, he named his album in 1974 after this place. It's a recording studio in France. That's uh -huh. where they were. And Robert Stigwood calls them and says, Hey, I'm doing this movie. Can you guys send me some songs? And Robin Gibbs says, We don't have time. <laughs> we, don't have, we can't do it, dude. No, sorry. We're booked. We're working on a new album. Uh-huh. Okay? And so he's like, oh, no, I really need you guys to... I really think this is change-your-life type of material. Yeah. You guys have got to do this. And so basically, they sacrificed that album, and it morphed into the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Fantastic. It's crazy to think that they did the whole movie without these songs. Oh, I know. We talked about how Boz Skaggs' Lowdown was supposed to be in there. Yeah. And they tried to get the rights for that, and they said no. Cost him five million bucks. Yeah. Travolta was dancing to Boz Skaggs and Stevie Wonder. Okay, so I mentioned that Robert Stigwood called these guys and Robin Gibbs said, we don't have time. So one of the things he says, number one, we don't have time. Number two, we're working on this other album already. Number three, we don't even know what this movie is about. Well, Robert Stigwood's like, well, here's the deal. Okay, it's about a, this guy who sells paint and he's a great dancer. <laughs> like he dances on the weekends, right? Yeah. This is what blows my mind, okay? <laughs> This is what they're dealing with, right? Right. He's a paint salesman who's a great dancer on the weekends. And you come up with How Deep Is Your Love and Night Fever and Staying Alive as a response to that? Yeah. It just speaks to their genius right there. Listen to this. They wrote these songs, those five 
right there. Virtually in one weekend, they wrote the first five songs on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Wow. Robert Stigwood calls them. They're at the Funky Chateau. So they're like, okay, you know, we'll work on some stuff. So they spent a weekend. Stigwood and his music supervisor, Bill Oakes, arrived to listen to the demos. Okay. Right. Yep. Bill Oakes, by the way, just put a pin in his name. Okay. Okay. They showed up. They played the demos for him. They flipped out and said, these are great. Could you make them a little more disco-y? <laughs> This is one of the most profitable albums of all time. It was a double album that uh-huh. had several songs that were just orchestral filling, yep. coupled with old hits and cheap stuff, <laughs> Okay, right. and the Bee Gees. Yeah. One of the most profitable albums of all time. Robert Stigwood, he's no dummy. No. He is a savvy businessman. Also shady, though. All right. Are we ready to dive in track by track? How about we save the best for first? <laughs> This song is called Staying Alive. You're not strutting in your seat right now. There's something wrong with you. This is the song of the Bee Gees. You say Bee Gees song, I say Staying Alive. Like, it's the song. It is representative of them. It's representative of the movie. It is representative of the disco era as a whole. It is the pinnacle, peak, the top song of all three of those categories. I agree with you. I would go a step further. Yeah. I would say this is one of the most recognizable songs of the 70s. Absolutely. Like, it is the decade in one three-minute or four-minute song. Yeah, for sure. So this song was originally called Saturday Night. Right. Robert Stigwood wanted a song called Saturday Night because the original working title for the movie was Saturday Night. Makes sense. Right? Yeah. And so they took this song and they kind of squeezed it and worked Saturday Night in there. Uh Uh-huh. And you can kind of hear how that would work, right? Yeah. Saturday Night, Saturday Night. Right. uh, And they thought, nah, it just doesn't sound right. And so they changed it to Staying Alive. Staying Alive is kind of interesting. So the song is about surviving in the streets of New York. I mean, if you look at the lyrics, you know, away from this fantastic groovy beat, you've got a song that's kind of dirty and mean and rough and tough, and you are a survivor. Like, staying alive means you've survived this difficult ordeal of living on the streets of New York. You know, they're in France, from the UK, they're in France. It came from Robin Gibbs' Concord ticket. Like, I guess there was some talk in there about, you know, what's going to happen if there's a plane crash and the difficulty of survival there, and that would kind of inspire him, but it became, instead of, you know, a plane crash, it became the streets of New York City. Wow. Yeah. I heard Robin Gibb talk about it. He said they're desperate words. Yeah. He said that desperate songs make great songs. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a song about going out on a Saturday night, it's going to be forgot. If you've got a song... <laughs> yeah, right. If you've got a song about fighting the most difficult life imaginable and coming out a winner, that's something that people will attach to. Mm-hmm. And just so, give it a groovy beat. Absolutely. When fans saw this movie... Yeah. The opening credits. Opening credits. It's John Travolta's feet. He's walking around, he's strutting, they've got that camera on the dolly, and it's just huh? his feet. The invention of the steady cam. Yes. Fans 
flooded radio stations to request them play this song. This was the second single. It wasn't the lead single. And Robert Stigwood kind of played his cards wisely, I think. He didn't want to come out with one and it fail and the movie flop and then that's it. You want to blow your load on the first song. Exactly. (laughs) But people responded, right? Yeah. This song hit number one, February 4th, 1978. Okay. It was the second Number one hit. It is the second number one hit. Second number one hit. Just hear those words. Number one hit. Okay. Put put a pin in that. Yeah. (laughs) It was not originally scheduled for release, but fans demanded it be released. You know what it was knocked out of the number one spot by? No. Mr. Andy Gibb with a song called Love is Thicker Than Water. So Andy is the younger brother. Like, he was much younger than the rest of the boys. Like, 10 years or something like that? Yeah, and he... He had a big career of his own, was also managed by Robert Stigwood, ended up dying at like 30 years old. Yeah, drugs, I think. Yeah. This song blocked Just the Way You Are by Billy Joel and We Are the Champions by Queen. Oh, wow. It kept them out of the top spot. Talk about being a big hitter. Yeah. This song kept We Are the Champions out of the number one spot. Yes. Amazing. Last thing on this. Yeah. This uses the same drum loop from More Than a Woman. Okay, I can see that. There I can you go. It. It's a drum beat that works. It won't stop. This is the disco song. This is yeah. the pinnacle of it's disco the, songs. I mean, Four on the floor, baby. Four man. on the floor. Okay, I've got to mention something real quick. Okay? okay, yeah. We talked a little bit just briefly last week about the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, a movie called Staying Alive. It got its name from this song. Okay? Yes. It starts Miss Cynthia Rhodes. Yeah. From Dirty Dancing. Yes, and she, from the Toto Rosanna video. From the Rosanna video. Yeah. She met her future husband, Richard Marks, on the set of that movie because he was writing music for that movie. Fantastic. I love how it all comes full circle. Okay. I got one more thing I got to talk about. Okay? okay. Yep. In episode three. Yes. By us. We covered Airplane and Spaceballs. <laughs> I'm so glad you said this because I'm like I'm like looking it up right now. I'm like, okay, when did we when did we come out with this? So our dear friend John Holland just texted us right before we started recording. So John, and he said the traffic is horrible, but you guys are keeping me sane. And sent us a picture of his console where it shows him listening to the Spaceballs versus Airplane episode, which was our second series of episodes. But you bring that up obviously because Angie, right? She's in Saturday Night Fever. No, because Staying Alive, (laughs) this song is played in the boy meets girl scene of the movie Airplane. Yes, when Elaine is dancing and the guy gets stabbed in the back and (laughs) he's pointing to the knife in his back and she thinks he's making disco moves. All that whole scene and the music is sped up 10%. Yes. So when you listen to it, it's... Fast. Extra falsetto right there. Yes. And interestingly, in the movie, John Travolta never does the point. The point came about when they were doing the photo shoot for the album. Right. He never did the point in the movie. But in Airplane, Robert Hayes does the point. Absolutely. With the ricochet sound effects when he does it. (laughs) (laughs) The song won a Grammy for... Best Arrangement for Voices. Do you watch The Office? Yes. Did you watch that episode where they were doing the CPR to yes. Staying Alive? Cuts the face mask. Yes. Yeah. It's ingrained in pop culture. Yeah. It is iconic. It is a juggernaut of yeah, a song. it is. All right. Second song is a song called How Deep Is Your Love? Morning sun, I feel you t- 
touch me in the pouring rain. The song is beautiful. Beautiful even in the falsetto. I mean, if, if you're going to do the falsetto, these are the guys that mastered it for sure. You know, he, he doesn't lean on the falsetto as much in this song. No. It's mostly his normal voice. Well, the falsetto came about because um, he said he was he was partly inspired by the Beach Boys. That's for you, Def Dave. What's up, Dave? And they he did it a little bit in 67. But then when they started recording these albums in the 70s, they were doing the disco stuff. Somebody was like, hey, I need somebody who could scream the lyric like Paul McCartney. He's like, well, I don't really scream, but I can do a falsetto. And he was the only one to volunteer to do it. But man, he nailed it. Barry Gibbs said his falsetto was hiding. Yeah. He didn't even know it existed. Yeah. That sound became the sound of the disco era. Yeah. So this song, listen to this. Okay. Hit number one. Shocker. On Christmas Eve 1977. This was the first single released. Yep. This is Barry Gibbs' favorite BG song. Here's the number one song. <laughs> okay, I got something a little more for you, okay? Yeah. This knocked You Light Up My Life out of the top spot. The you light up my life. Yes, Debbie Boone. Yep. So How Deep Is Your Love spent 17 weeks in the top 10. Okay. The Billboard Top 10. That's incredible. It was bested by a Boys to Men song. Okay. Can you name that song? I, I would like to try, but no, I don't have a clue. That's it. Spent 19 weeks. You belong to me. (laughs) I belong to you. Sorry, I guess I could have named it, huh? Yeah, I guess so, right? (laughs) Hard to reach back that far. I have a funny story about the creation of this song. okay? Okay, yeah. So one morning, one of the guys in the band, his name is Blue Weaver, okay? Right. He's yeah. actually a piano player who was in Mott the Hoople. He's a big session musician, played for tons of other bands. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it was just him and Barry in the studio one day. Yep. And so Barry says, hey, play the most beautiful chord that you know. Uh-huh. And so he's like, hmm, okay, well, how about this? And he's like, okay, that's good, that's good. Now play the next most beautiful chord you know. Uh-huh. And then he would play it. Yeah. And then they would slowly just kind of be like, okay, that's a good one. Okay, no, play something different. Okay, no. Okay, that's a great one right there. And so little by little, they kind of built this chord progression. And so that night, Blue got tired or drank too much or whatever, (laughs) went to sleep. And when he woke up, they had recorded a demo. Wow. He had fallen asleep. When he went to bed, they, they recorded the demo. Now, it's interesting. Like, I listen to these guys. They were not the mutt-lang school of recording. They basically got it the first take. Like, they wrote the lyrics the day they were going to record. So they'd, wow. they'd put together the music in a short amount of time. Then when they knew it was recording day, they would write the lyrics. <laughs> and then they would record in just a few sessions. Like, very short span of time. And they released, like, when they were first started recording, they were releasing, like, three albums a year. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I did hear that uh, Barry Gibbs said melody was first. Yep. You get a great melody, then you build the verses from there. And that's why all these songs are so melodious. 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 Yep. Actually talked about having Yvonne Elman record this one. Yeah. But Stigwood said, no, this is too good. You've got to not give it to somebody else. Yeah, and he was right. He was right. Absolutely love this one. Another number one hit, that's two for two. 
Yeah, and you've got this great, I mean, the dynamics of an album are very important. And you got this disco album, you might think, boom, dance song, boom, dance song, but they don't do that. They go boom, dance song, and then they go nice, slow, sweet song. How about we bring in another disco song? Now? Let's let's go. <laughs> let's disco it out. Song number three. This song's called Night Fever. Okay, so the the nice I love that. It is so disco. It is so definitively disco. It's got the the kind of wah phaser effect on the guitar, on the muted strings, the and then they bust in. I mean, another great one, dude. This is disco e man. This is where the title of the movie comes from. I know, right? Right, so this, the article that they based the movie on was called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. So they had this Saturday night in mind, but then when they heard this song, Night Fever, they were like, oh, that's it. We're going to blend these two titles, Saturday Night Night Fever, Saturday Night Fever. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my wife. I kept talking to her about, hey, we're comparing Dirty Dancing versus Saturday Night Fever. Uh-huh. And she just had this block in our brain. She kept saying Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. Saturday Night Live. And some of the people on Facebook have commented that, which is their favorite movie? Saturday Night Live. 100%. Because <laughs> the word live comes after Saturday Night, right. right? This one's got some interesting chart history with it, okay? Uh-huh. To say that the Bee Gees were scorching hot at this time <laughs> is a way understatement, right. okay? So this song is another number one hit, third in a row. Third single off the album, third number one hit. Yes. And now for number one. (laughs) So listen to this. When they dropped this song, it debuted at number 76. It leaped 44 positions to number 32. Uh Uh-huh. Then 17, 8, 5, 2, and 1. That is a tremendously fast climb to the top one. Oh, yeah. To the top spot. Yeah. Okay? Now then, I'm going to throw this at you. The top five... For March 18th, 1978. I don't want to glaze anybody's eyes over, but this is so amazing, it blows me away, okay? Okay. March 18th, 1978. Yep. Number five, the song Love is Thicker Than Water. Yep. That's an Andy Gibbs song written by the Gibb Brothers. Right. Number four is Lay Down Sally, Eric Clapton. Yep. Number three is a song called Emotion by Samantha Sang. Okay. Written by the Gibb Brothers. Oh my gosh. Number two is Staying Alive. Oh my gosh. And number one is Night Fever. That is nuts. They had four songs in the top five at the same time. I love it. Okay, so you have you heard of the song called A Summer Place? Came out in the 60s. It was by the Percy Faith Orchestra. Not a lot of people are going to know A Summer Place when you say the name, but that music is unmistakable, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned Blue Weaver on the last song. Right. So he had always had this idea of, I would like to do kind of a disco version of that song. Because that song, like, it takes you to a happy place, right? It just makes you feel good. And so he was like, disco is supposed to make you feel good. Let's do a disco version of that song. And so what he ended up doing was twisting the chords a bit and... As he was playing it, Barry said, what was that? And I said, a theme from a summer place. And Barry said, no, it wasn't. It was new. 
he heard the idea, he was playing it on a string synthesizer, and Barry sang the riff over it, and that is how Night Fever was born. Wow, that's a great story right there. Okay, I've got something for you on this, okay? Yeah. Have you seen the music video for Night Fever? No. Okay, remember back in our Guns N' Roses episode, Uh we talked about the music video for a song called It's So Easy. It was recorded and not released and not seen by anybody for like 20 years. Okay. Same thing happened with Night Fever. Okay, Okay, yeah. They shot a video in 1978. Okay. Nobody saw that video until 2004. What? Yeah. So I watched this video, okay? Uh Uh-huh. And so it's... It's a 70s disco video, right? <laughs> right? The brothers are singing. But the cool thing is, is there's a lot of video of what they call Motel Row in Florida. Uh-huh. But it looks like you're watching the movie Diamonds Are Forever. I mean, it's like a moment plucked right out of the 70s. It's a really cool little treasure chest of 70s stuff. Okay. So check it out if you get a chance. Okay, cool. Night Fever spent eight weeks at number one. That's more than any other song in 1978. They were blistering hot at this moment. Or the next song in the album is... More Than a Woman. So, Dee, this song was not released as a single. Well, the Bee Gees version wasn't released as a single. Right, 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 right. Okay. Yes. But it's... I mean, I know the Bee Gees version. Me too. But there's another version, but that's... A few songs ahead. We'll get that one. Yeah. But it blows me away that this was never released as a single. I'm very familiar with this song. I couldn't believe it wasn't another number one. Right. It could have been, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think it actually might have charted. It just was was one of those things where it was charting even though it was never released as a single. Mm Mm-hmm. I believe this is the song that uh, when John Travolta and Annette are dancing, they dance to this song. Okay. Practicing. Okay, so I know this is the Bee Gees song. Yeah. But this was never released as a single by the Bee Gees. It blows me away that this is not a single because this is a popular song and one I was very familiar with. Yeah, and now obviously with the album selling like it did, it still played on the radio. No question about that. Right. But the version that we're going to talk about in a little bit is really the more chart-topping version that existed. That's true. Yeah. Although I still believe that if they had released this one, it's another number one hit. Yeah. This is a huge song. It, yes. Okay, so the fifth song on the album is a song called If I Can't Have You. Okay, so this is another song by the Bee Gees. Yes. It's just not sung by the Bee Gees. 
Yes. This song was sung by Yvonne Element. Yeah. So, who in the heck is that, you ask yourself? I am asking you. You tell me. All who right. is this lady? I will tell you. Yes. Okay? So, she has two connections that got her this job, in okay. my opinion. All right. Other than being a successful singer or whatever. Got a nice voice. She played Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar. Love it. That was produced by our man, Robert Stickwood. You're blowing my mind, man. Woo! And she was also married to Bill Oakes, the RSO executive that went over to the Funky Chateau to listen to the demo tapes. Nice. She's got a great voice, and this is a huge song. Yeah. There are connections that probably got her this song, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Sure. Okay? So can you tell me about what happened with her later on in life? Yeah, so this is interesting. So (laughs) I told you that this is my earliest favorite song. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, that's right. And so whenever I hear this song, I always remember it just kind of bounces around in my head. Mm -hmm. I was five years old. I was sitting at Swinson's Ice Cream Shop in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Shout out to Swinson's. Shout out to Swinson's. No longer there. Okay? (laughs) Shocker. They played it over the loudspeaker. I remember sitting there eating my ice cream cone going, I really like this song. In fact, it's my favorite. And it was a time in my life when I knew about three songs, including... And mint chocolate chip is my favorite ice cream. <laughs> I, that's my early spiking the football right there. Five-year-old Jason Coleman spikes the football on If I Can't Have You. <laughs> that's it. That's it. I told you, I, ha- I like... I knew, like, this song plus Staying Alive plus the Bare Necessities, right? Uh, but for those bare necessities. Okay, so listen to this. So I'm. So I gotta know what happened with the lady who sang your first Spike the Football favorite song. Okay. Okay, Miss Yvonne Elliman. 1978 was a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> so listen to what she's doing in 2017. Okay? okay. Yeah. So she's over in Guam. Guam. She's getting ready to sing for the Catholic school charity. Okay. Which, you think these kids have ever heard If I Can't Have You? Maybe. I don't think so. It was the biggest selling album of the 1970s. Okay, maybe so. Doubt it, but maybe so. (laughs) She was arrested for transporting marijuana and meth. Well, those plane rides out to Guam take a long time. You need a little cool down and a little bump up. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Oh, it made me sad. She had to use a cane in court. That's how old this is. Oh my gosh. But they, they punted her back to Hawaii, her home state, and she did her time over there. Well, that was mighty neighborly of them. Mary Magdalene transporting meth. Okay? Still a great song. Oh, it's a fantastic song. And one that is very, very close to my heart. This song was given to Yvonne after they kind of toyed with giving her How Deep Is Your Love? Uh-huh. But instead they gave her If I Can't Have You? Yeah. And it became sort of Annette's theme song in the movie. Yeah. And it makes it kind of a sad song, right? Right. Because she's pining after Tony. Who doesn't want her. Who doesn't want her, and so she doesn't want nobody, baby. Okay. So, out of five songs, that's four out of five number ones. Wait a minute. Which one didn't hit number one? More Than a Woman that was not released as a single. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense then. Okay. Okay. All right. So... The producer of this song is a guy named Freddie Perrin. He had his own like wrecking crew, guys, studio musicians that always played at his recording studio, which was called the Mom and Pops Company Store. Okay. Um, we have Bob Boogie Bowles on the guitar. Bob Boogie Bowles? <laughs> it's Bowles. 
It's not bowels, it's bowels. There's an E. I hit it when my bowels boogie. <laughs> uh, Scott Edwards on the bass and James Gadsden on the drums. And as it happens, Freddie Perrin and these guys also did the song that comes right out after the next song that we're about to talk about. They did the Tavers version of More Than a Woman. Oh, okay, cool. Cool. Well, we'll talk about that here in just a second. Yeah. All right, D. Take the needle off the record, flip it over, place the needle on, and here we go. The next song on the album is a song called A Fifth of Beethoven. Ludwig van Beethoven was born in Germany, (laughs) (laughs) went deaf, composed a thousand musical masterpieces, and died in 1827. And he hit number one in 1976. (laughs) A mere 150 years later. That is incredible. (laughs) Took somebody named Walter Murphy, changed his fifth symphony into a disco song, and it became a number one hit, October 1976. This is arguably Beethoven's most well-known composition. Mm -hmm. You got this, and you got Ode to Joy, basically. Thank you, Die Hard. (sighs) Yes. But it just made sense to put a disco beat with it and put it in this movie, right? It's fun. I I love this instrumental version. It's prominent in the movie. Uh It's a number one hit. It's a lot of fun. When we did our Van Halen versus Van Hagar episode, I talked about having an album called Hooked on the Classics, and it's all this same type of thing. This kind of groovy disco beat with electric guitar style versions of classical masterpieces mashed up together. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. I got to throw this out there real quick. Yeah. The top five when this hit number one. Yeah. It's kind of notable. This song hit number one. This song hit number one yes. in 1976. Okay, so it's prior to the release of the album. This is a number one hit from the year before. Okay. They kind of scooped it up for pennies. Yeah. Right? The royalty's really low on this one. Okay? Right, right. So the top five the week this hit number one. Number five, If You Leave Me Now by Chicago. Okay. Great song. Number four, a song that you mentioned, I think, last week. Disco Duck by Rick Dees. There you go. I mean, you talk about disco being hot. When Donald Duck gets a top five hit. <laughs> by a California DJ, no less. <laughs> Number three is Lowdown by Boss Skaggs. Ah, from, that they used in the movie. Well, that they wanted to use in the movie. Well, when they used, when they yeah. were doing the dance scenes, they I mean, that's what John Travolta was dancing that's to. That's exactly right. Yeah. With the guys from Toto playing the instruments on that one. Yeah. Number two is Play That Funky Music by Casey and the Sunshine Band. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Okay. And then, of course, A Fifth of Beethoven, number one. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. Moving on. Well, Beethoven's dead, so let's keep going. The next song on the album is the Tavares version of More Than a Woman. So this song is by the Tavers. Yep. They actually were backstage at Madison Square Garden at a BG show, and that's when the BG said, hey, would you guys like to record a version of this song? Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and as I mentioned, Freddie Perrin was the one who produced this one. Freddie Perrin had produced hits by the Jackson 5, co-produced and co-wrote I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. I mean, okay. this is, for these songs on this album, he won the Grammy. Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. You know what the Tavars were called before they were called the Tavars? 
yes, I do. Chubby and the Turnpikes. Because those things go together. <laughs> Chubby and the Turnpikes? What? I know. I know. And like you mentioned previously, this was the version of More Than a Woman that actually charted. Yeah. Which to me is an absolute crime. The Bee Gees version is way better. Well, yeah, it is. Okay. Next. The next song is called Manhattan Skyline. Okay, I got something for you. Okay, good. On Manhattan Skyline. Yeah. This song, for whatever reason, it rings bells in my head. I think this instrumental was used on like TV shows or award banquets or something because <laughs> it just sounds so familiar, but I can't place it. It's it's the perfect little background music to some sort of, well, scene of New York, right? Sure. So this is the first song on this album that was written by the guy who's considered the composer of the movie. This song is by David Shire. He's a guy who composed stage musicals and ton of film and television scores, including The Big Bus, The Taking of Felon 123, The Conversation, and All the President's Men. Not too shabby. You know what else? Yeah. Max Dugan Returns. Nice. And Short Circuit. Oh. How about that? Johnny Five. (laughs) And one of the stage musical scores that he wrote? Yeah was the musical production of Big. Nice. That movie we hope to cover next season. This guy's still around. He's 84 years old, still alive and kicking. Hey, you know who he was married to? Let's, well, let's go through his list. His his name is David Shire, and I know an actress whose last name is Shire who we've talked about in one of our episodes from this season. Talia freaking Shire. Adrian! Talia Shire from the Godfather episodes that we talked about a few weeks ago. Yes. He later married Didi Khan, who played Frenchie in Greece. Beauty school dropout. They look so much alike. Not when Didi Khan has her weird pink hair. <laughs> but those two people look incredibly similar. I want, I'm curious as to how they met, because obviously Francis Ford Coppola, we talked about how when he agreed to do The Godfather 2, part of it was that he got to do The Conversation and David Shire's the Guy, I don't makes sense. Wonder, I wonder. Okay, cool. It's instrumental. It's interesting. Moving on. Next song is called Calypso Breakdown. So when this drum beat starts, I start thinking, is my record skipping here? Are they going to get to the song? What's going on here? <laughs> this song is an uh, instrumental created by this guy named Ralph McDonald. Okay? Yeah, yeah. He is a world famous percussionist. Yeah. Maybe James Buckley can shed some light on him. But listen to this. this is, are you ready to have your mind blown? I, okay. I'm ready, yes. So he's a percussionist. Yes. Plays the drums. He also the writes... Congas. Not the Congos, like I made the mistake on our Toto episode. <laughs> the Congas. Yes. Go ahead. He also apparently writes songs. Yes. He wrote the song Where's the Love by Roberta Flack, which won the Grammy in 1971. Okay. Famous yeah. song. Yeah. And he also wrote the song Just the, the Two of Us. us. I love it. Yeah, that reached number two. That song was uh, sung by Bill Withers and then later covered by Will Smith. I will say that almost absolves him of this eight minute long monstrosity that we <laughs> will definitely be skipping, but it doesn't. I want to I wanna move on. You, Moving on. Why did you just give me a 45 second ticket, 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 
All right, lift the needle, take that record, put it back in the sleeve carefully because you don't want to scratch it. Pull out the second album, lay it down, put the needle down. This is the first song on side one of record two. It's called Night on Disco Mountain. Another instrumental bar, man, David Shire. Yes. So this one, like the fifth of Beethoven, they've taken a classical piece, Night on Bald Mountain by Modest Muscorgi, and they've put the disco beat to it, and I love it. I dig it. I, I'm a big fan of Fantasia, the Disney Fantasia, where they have all of these classical pieces, and Night on Bald Mountain may be my favorite song of those songs on that i mean the the whole thing i dig the song i like it a lot it's okay fun. it's fun to me this song is played in the movie when the those four jackweeds are <laughs> running around the bridge and scaring the crap out of annette and giving her ptsd okay i've got a really deep cut for you regarding night on disco mountain okay all right really it. this is really deep okay? lay it on me my brother all right <laughs> so you mentioned that night on disco mountain is based on Night on Bald Mountain, mm-hmm. the original composition by Mazgorsky. Yes, Mazgorsky. Yep. Okay. It was featured in Fantasia, Walt Disney's Fantasia, 1940. That's the one I love, yes. That song was arranged by Leopold Stokowski. Yes, famous com- uh, conductor, yes. Who was parodied by Bugs Bunny. This <laughs> <laughs> is Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yes. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> Bugs Bunny... Pretended to be Leopold. 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 (laughs) And that is my deep rabbit hole, my friends. Oh, great. That's fantastic. All right. Next song? Moving on. Next song is called Open Sesame by Cool and the Gang. Genie. Yeah, so this one is not one of Cool and the Gang's more well-known hits. Right. You probably know them from Jungle Boogie. I know them from Celebration. Yeah, that too, right? But yeah, Jungle Boogie is familiar to me. Yeah, on the Pulp Pulp Fiction soundtrack, yes sir. And they were big in the 70s as well. Jungle Boogie had come out in 73 on their album Wild and Peaceful. Yep. Listen, Celebration is the pinnacle Cool in the Gang song. Yeah. I'm spiking the football on that one. Yeah, yeah. And they also had Cherish, which is another Cherish, fantastic. Misled. I mean, yep. Fresh. Get down on it. Get down on Joanna. it. Joanna. Hey, they supported Van Halen on their tour in 2012. Wow. Van Halen and Cool in the Gang on the same bill? Hey, why not? Why not? Why not? I don't have much to say about this song. This is not a favorite of mine. Skipper. Okay, so jumping past that one, we are on to Dove Talking. I don't get to, that's the third time I've got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> this song is irresistible. Absolutely. Fantastic. And as I mentioned earlier, it came from their comeback album, 
main course, right? Yeah. This was not originally released on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. This was originally released on main course. It was their first top 10 hit since How Can You Mend a Broken Heart from 71. And this was considered like a comeback song. Yeah, for this them. was, I mean, this was saying, hey, Bee Gees are a disco band now, right? That's a big deal. Right. Chai Talking is introducing the Bee Gees as a disco band. But here it is on this soundtrack. The difference is they used the live version for the soundtrack. The reason they did that was because it made Robert Stigwood more money to use the live version in the movie than to use the one from main course. Are you sure about that? Yes. Oh, in the movie. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Robert Stigwood is not afraid to make some money. He's not afraid to do some deals to, to screw some other people out of money. That's true. <laughs> so listen, the the beginning part of this song where it's like the chicka 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 Yes. They got that sound from the car rolling over the Biscayne Bay Bridge in Miami. Oh, nice. Just kind of the rhythm that the tires make. Yeah. They showed up in Miami because Eric Clapton said, you guys should go to Miami. I felt much better. I watched an interview with Barry Gibb. Yeah. And the girl who was interviewing him was driving him around in the car. Uh-huh. And she's like, are we on the Jive Talking Bridge? <laughs> and he's like, we are on the Jive Talking Bridge. On the Jive... I, that's awesome. It was really cool. That was awesome. This song reached number one August 9th, 1975. Uh-huh. Like you said, this is two years prior to Saturday Night Fever. The song was originally called Drive Talking. Okay. Based on the sounds that your car makes, yeah. right? When you're driving on the bridge, sure. So they switched it to jive talking, and their producer <laughs> Excuse said... Excuse me, miss. I speak jive. Suck <laughs> <laughs> so it don't want no help, suck so it don't get no help. <laughs> That's our second airplane reference this time. But their producer said, do you know what jive talking even means? Uh-huh. And they're like... Uh, you know, it's like, you know, when you're dancing or something. Like, <laughs> no, it doesn't mean when you're dancing. It's a black term that means you're full of it. You're spouting off BS. Oh, that's hilarious. And so they're like, okay, so they changed the, the words. And so that's about lies and okay. deception. Hey, there you go. We'll make it work. Write the lyrics on the same day. When they released this single to the radio stations, uh-huh. like I said, it was the comeback song for the Bee Gees. Yeah. So if they, they send the single in and it says Bee Gees, the radio disc jockey's like, nope, no thanks. It was in a plain white cover. So literally, you had to take the record out, put it on, and listen to it to figure out who it was by. Wow. And it worked. Worked like a charm. Nice. The mystery. I love it. How about that? That's great. It was used in a scene in the movie, but that scene was cut. That's why you don't see it in Saturday Night Fever. Okay, you keep talking about these songs, and you keep talking. I'm sorry. I don't think you should be talking. I think you should be dancing. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great segue to our next song, You Should Be Dancing. Okay, so here's another number one hit. Oh my gosh. This is another number one hit, but it wasn't originally released on this soundtrack. Okay. It was on an earlier Bee Gees album called Children of the World. Okay. This hit number one September 4th, 1976. Okay. A full year prior to Saturday Night Fever. Gotcha. My kids know this song very well from the movie Despicable Me. Oh, yeah. 
Yes. They play this at the very end of Despicable Me. Oh, yeah. One of the minions flips on the disco album and everybody starts dancing. It's great. A dozen boogie robots. <laughs> Cookie robots. I said cookie robot. Oh, why are you so old? <laughs> Despicable Me, a favorite at the Graves and Calvin households. There you go. So John Travolta prepared for Saturday Night Fever by practicing dance moves to this song. Okay. And when they came to him and said, no, we're going to play Night Fever at the time you take the floor. And he's like, nope, you're playing. You should be dancing. Yeah. And so they went, mm, I guess we'll just have to go get that song. Yeah. And so at his insistence, that song's in the movie, and that's why it's on the soundtrack. Uh, I love the amount of control that this guy who is in his very first major motion picture has. Like, controlling the cut over the director and controlling the song choice <laughs> over the musical director. I'm like, what? But he was right. Okay, you ready to have your mind blown? Yeah, hit me. Okay, it's two things. The DGs, which is a side project that's of me. The... I'm DG. You are the DG. I'm DG. D. Graves. There are you, you the member of the DGs? No. Tell me about the DGs. The DGs, which is a side project of the Foo Fighters. Okay. You've got my attention. Has a cover of this song. Oh, I love those guys. <laughs> Such a tragic loss. One last thing. Steven Stills of Crosby, Stills & Nash. Mm-hmm plays percussion on this song. I listened to Maurice Gibb do an interview with Alec Baldwin. He was actually talking about, I can't remember which song it was, but he was like, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were sitting on the wall listening to us record this song. He goes, we used to record in the same studio with Leonard Skinner and with the Eagles, and they would just, we'd go hang out with them at night, and we'd play, and maybe nothing would come of it, but it was just great fun to be able to hang out with these incredible musicians and make this music together. I think Don Felder ends up being, oh, he does. He's on... Uh, this will come later, but he's on the last album that they did for RSO Records. He's on one of the songs Don Felder is. Wow. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Okay. The next song on the album is called Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band. We're bopping our heads when they play this song. <laughs> I tell you what, Casey and the Sunshine Band, as far as disco bands go, they might be number two after the Bee Gees. Right? I mean, they have a whole lot of disco hits that have persisted through time to still be something that's on everybody's mind. Yeah, this is another old song. This was on the 1975 album. Uh huh. It wasn't a hit initially. Yeah. But because of the movie, they released it and it got to number 35 on the Hot 100. Yeah. When it was originally released, it was the B side to another single. You know the single? No. Shake, shake, shake. Shake, shake, shake. Really? Shake your booty. Oh. Shake your booty. Yes. That's awesome. Good job. <laughs> So this has been in No Escape, Mall Rats, yeah. Boogie Nights. Of course. That's what I know it from is Boogie Nights. Yes. Detroit Rock City. Yeah. The Wedding Day. It's a popular song. It's a good song. I yeah. like it. It's a toe tapper. Yeah. Next. Next. All right. Take the needle off the record. Flip that record over for side two of record two. First song is called Salsation by David Shire. Okay. What do you got? 
So play the introduction to Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. Classic, one of my all-time favorites by the Stones. Very close. Spot on, man. It's Very close. It is spot on the same drum beat. Wow. And then David Shire comes in with some sort of Barry Manlow music going on. I don't know what this I don't know what this music is. I think they play this song in the movie when the Latin couple is uh, competing at the very end and John Travolta's like, they outdanced us. This stinks. This whole competition sucks. Yeah. I have bad memories of that scene in the movie. If I remember correctly, when they did the re-release of this movie, making it PG so that other people could see it, and maybe some of the TV versions, I think they replaced this song with a more Latin-sounding song. Okay. Okay. All right. Once again, David Shire, he's the composer of the movie. Yeah. Next? Yes, hit me. The next song on the album is called KG by MFSB. Okay, so MFSB, all kinds of weird names you could come up with there. Yeah. Mother, father, sister, brother. Okay. I think that's the nice version of what it really stands for. <laughs> I heard yes. MFing son of beast. Yes. Well, mother, father, sister, brother. This is a group of like 30 studio musicians, right? This is a complex group and mix of music here. But The Sound of Philadelphia was their second most successful th- single. You will know it as the theme from Soul Train. Oh, right. Yeah. That's cool. I do know that a lot of news stations in the 70s and 80s used this instrumental song as kind of their funky background music as they switch stories or whatever. Perfect. Perfect. Cool? Yeah. This actually charted at number 39 on the Hot 100. Okay. You ready for this? Yes. This song was written by Harvey Fuqua. Okay. That's F-U-Q-U-A. Yeah. So Harvey was married to a lady named Gwen Gordy. They distributed the first Motown hit single, which was called Money, That's What I Want, which you will know from the Beatles redoing it later on. Then he sold his record to his wife Gwen Gordy's brother, Barry Gordy, who is, of course... One of the most iconic Motown producers in history. <laughs> so, Barry Gordy's brother-in-law wrote this song. Wow! There you go. Wow! We are digging deep for nuggets. All right. Last, Last song. song on the album. This song is called Disco Inferno by the Tramps. Burn the mother down. Disco Inferno. Burn, baby, burn. This is a disco era classic. This is just an iconic. I mean, they're ending the two album set with a tentpole song. This song, of course, had been released before the movie came out, before the soundtrack came out. It was re-released on the soundtrack, but this song is, is another 70s disco icon. You know where they got the inspiration for this song from? The movie Towering Inferno. Oh, nice. This is one of those movies that I watched all the time on like the Sunday night movie and with my jammies on in my sleeping bag when I was a little kid. Watched disaster movies as a small child, huh? Oh, yeah. I loved them. Put me right to sleep. (laughs) 
Okay. But there's a big fire in this tall building, and O.J. Simpson's trying to put it out. And <laughs> The juice? The juice and Paul Newman are working really hard and uh, Steve McQueen. It's fantastic. Fred Astaire's there. Lots of stuff going on. Uh This song comes from that movie, Burn Baby Burn. Wow. Burn that mother down. That's awesome. So this song, since the release, has been covered a couple times. Once by Tina Turner for Mm -hmm. the movie What's Love Got to Do With It? Yeah. And once for the movie Night at the Roxbury by Miss Cindy Lauper. Nice. Yeah. Maybe we cover her next year. What do you think? I think that's a good idea. She's so unusual. She's so unusual. <laughs> 11 minutes of Disco Inferno. That's at a the lot. End. That's a lot. It's a great song, but 11 minutes is a little bit long for me. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though. You are ending the album on a tentpole song. It's killer. Love it. Yep. So, of note, some songs that didn't appear on this album that were in the movie. Wow, okay. You've got Emotion by Samantha Sang. You ki- Written you- by the Brothers Gibb. Yes. you got If I Can't Have You by the Bee Gees. Right. You've got Our Love, Don't Throw It All Away by the Bee Gees again. And Warm Ride by the Bee Gees. The Bee Gees are all over this stinking movie. And, of course, all over this album. Fantastic album. Every single that they released from this album? Yeah. Hit number one. Yeah. That's killing it, dude. That is. I mean, can't get much higher than one. No. No. And even the I mean, even the songs that they didn't release as a single, some other band released, they still charted. Yvonne Elliman, number one, if I can't have you. Wow. All right, are we ready to do final judgment between Dirty Dancing soundtrack and the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack? This is too hard. <laughs> this is freaking too hard. I'm not kidding. I don't I don't have an answer for you right now. What? I don't have an answer for you. I'm gonna have to sit here. You're gonna have to give me like at least ten seconds to like run over the miracle work that is both of these albums. Because with Dirty Dancing, you've got hits from the 60s, you've got hits from the 80s, and with this one, you've got hits from the 70s. And those are all my sweet spots. <laughs> Every single decade there is, oh my gosh. It's iconic song after iconic song after iconic song. Yeah, okay. You're going to have to go first. You want me to go first? Go first. Okay, so... Here's the deal. I told you that some of my earliest memories involve this album right here. Saturday Night Fever soundtrack has a special place in my heart. It's what I listened to when I was playing with my Star Wars action figures after A New Hope came out. Nice. Okay. So it's your first favorite song. It's my first favorite song. Dirty Dancing. I love those songs. So I have nostalgia feelings for all of those songs. Time of My Life was the song of 87. All of that. But the hit after hit after hit after hit after hit on Saturday Night Fever is so undeniable. The Bee Gees are an unappreciated punching bag for so many people. I hate it. But just the number one hit after number one hit after number one hit. So there's a lot of crap songs on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, right? Okay. There's not a lot of crap songs on the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. That's true. But if I'm running out the door and I can only grab one of these albums, for me, it's it's unquestionably my earliest memories. I'm grabbing the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, spike the football, take it all day long, deed your turn. Okay. With Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, not only do you have songs from the 70s that are all iconic, 
I mean, you've got reissues of Casey and the Sunshine Band, of Cool and the Gang, of of the Tramps. I mean, you got that. And then you have Bee Gees masterpieces. Like, this is their pinnacle album. They said, we don't want to do this because we're recording an album. As it turned out, this was the album they needed to do. It falls out amazing how good these songs are. And they just make you happy. They do what disco is supposed to do. We talked in our earlier episodes about how people, at by the time the seven, early 70s rolled around, they were tired of the philosophical folk, you know, all that stuff. They wanted to just have some music they could go dance to. Go have some fun. And you know what? For this time in history, right now, at this moment, I want a song I can have fun to. If I'm going to walk out the door and I'm going to grab one of these CDs, it's going to be Saturday Night Fever. I love the songs on Dirty Dancing. And you're right, percentage-wise, there are fewer throwaway tracks. But we're talking about a double album versus a single album. Now, I'll say this. If you gave me Dirty Dancing and more Dirty Dancing against the Saturday Night Fever album, I don't know that I would still pick Saturday Night Fever, but that's not what we're deciding today. We did not cover more Dirty Dancing, which brought us more of those hits from the 60s that we loved, but those weren't on the original Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And of those songs in the 80s, they're not my favorite 80s songs. They're good. They bring me memories, but they're just kind of, you know, slow dance songs that I was really thinking about other things in the gym dancing with a girl than that song. Right. So, Spike in the Football with you, Saturday Night Fever is the better album. That is fantastic. We've been on the same page on both of these comparisons, by the way. We both picked Dirty Dancing as the far better movie. Yep. And we both have picked Saturday Night Fever soundtrack as the better soundtrack. So let's rank them one, two, three, four. Okay. Walking out the door, I am picking Dirty Dancing, the movie first. Okay. Saturday Night Fever, the album second. Okay. Dirty Dancing, the album third. And Saturday Night Fever, a far distant, I will never watch that movie again, fourth. Okay, interesting. That's good. That's good. Thanks. Here's where I am. Okay. I'm walking out the door. Here's what I'm grabbing. Saturday Night Fever soundtrack first. Okay. Blowing the disco music out of my speakers unapologetically. (laughs) Number one hit after number one hit, including my very first favorite song. Second thing I'm grabbing is the Dirty Dancing movie. Okay. It has those songs, plus it's got a great love story, plus Cynthia Rhodes, you know, (laughs) plus Mr. Cool, Patrick Swayze. Yeah. It's a great movie. Yes. And and you get to see the lift. That's why I put it number one. Number three is the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. The songs are great. And then a distant fourth. Will you ever watch the movie again? No, I would not. Yeah. If you said you could watch Saturday Night Fever for the next two hours, or I'll give you a nice paper cut and put some lemon juice in it, <laughs> I'd probably pick the paper cut. Because then it, at least it'd be over like in, you know, five minutes or so. We're not fans. No. We are not. And we I'm totally sorry, folks, agree. We understand this captured a moment in time, but it is a moment in time we weren't experienced in and we'd sooner forget. Yep, that's right. But we want to hear from you guys. Absolutely. Tell us how we're totally off base. There are some people out there that feel the same way about the Dirty Dancing movie that we feel about the Saturday Night Fever movie. And we want to hear from you. Tell us why Dirty Dancing sucks and why Saturday Night Fever is the best. Okay, next week, come back. Because we have been putting this podcast off for two Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. This was supposed to be season one. Then it was supposed to be season two. Here we are in season three. Thank you, COVID. No, thank you. (laughs) (sighs) Finally, they're going to release Top Gun Maverick. And of course, we have to, have to cover one of the most iconic movies of 1986, nay, 1980s altogether. Top Gun. 
Be sure and join us. Hit that follow button now. We obviously have spent some time on this. We spent some time with you and we enjoyed that time. If you enjoyed it, give us a five stars on your podcast app. Give us a review on your podcast app. If you can fit in the words night fever or I carried the watermelons in the review, you will be entered into a running to get one of our awesome custom engraved Yeti style cups. Surely you can't be serious logo plus your name. Thank you to all of you who have submitted reviews up until now. We truly appreciate you. You can't tell you how much your loyalty means to us. Come back next week. We're going to go Mach 3 with our hair on fire. <laughs> Great balls of fire. I think she lost it. <laughs> I hate it when she does it. <laughs>